This is the Church Planning Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Every week we sit down with leaders who are shaping church planning efforts. Here's your host, Josh Taransky and Clint Clifton. Hey, welcome to the Church Planting Podcast. My name is Josh Taransky, and as always, I'm joined by Clint Clifton, and today helping us intro a very important conversation is Michael Crawford. Uh, Clint has uh, decided, hey, let's take a break from the regular scheduled episodes that we were going to air and spend a couple of weeks talking about mental health and suicide. Clint, you sent an email Uh, late last week in light of some events that were occurring and some news that was on the internet and said, hey, we've got to take a break here. We've got to to talk about suicide for a little bit. So Clint, uh, what were your thoughts and and introduce Michael to us as well. Yeah, well, Mike's going to speak for himself in just a few minutes. He's been a guest on on the podcast a few times in the past and he's just uh, a very uh, bright mind and um, he has a special heart and interest uh, in the subject of really mental health issues altogether in the church, but um, on this subject. So, so Michael's going to be here to uh, help us intro these couple episodes. Um, and on each episode, we're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to talk about a podcast that he did with, uh, with uh, someone else. Uh, and he's going to talk about that just a little bit called Superman's Crystals. And so we're going to sort of be referring you to another podcast, even in this podcast, because the whole podcast, that's a, a series of eight podcasts and all on the subject of suicide and hopefully it could be a good resource for you. But yeah, Josh, as you said, you know, this is in the news again, uh, pastors uh, dying by suicide and man, it's just, it's just really sad. We're supposed to be distributors of hope and um, many times the very uh, individuals who are to distribute hope um, can't find it themselves. And so uh, I just hope this conversation will be in some way edifying or helpful uh, to a pastor who's struggling with mental health issues. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Michael, you are the director of missions and of church planting for the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware. And as Clint was saying, you have done a series uh, uh, with your own uh, a podcast, uh, not um, what we call it episodic, but really a, a standalone eight episodes dealing with uh, the topic of suicide. Um, so thanks for joining us on this episode. Well, thank you for inviting me. And Clint knows, and I think you do too, that whenever I'm invited to talk about this, I do so with two emotions. One is fear, but the other one is believe it or not, excitement, because it's my opinion that we got to talk about this more. And it's my opinion that if we don't talk about it, we're not going to get any better and we're not going to learn. And we're going to continue to not be able to help people, at least the ones that we can. And I think that um, bringing things to light is the best way to address things and to love people and potentially spare lives in the future. Yeah. Clint, you um, had us in preparation for this read an article. Did you want to share that? There, there was a, a couple of highlights that you identified in the article that you shared with us from the ERLC. Yeah. 
the article's titled "Why Do Pastors Die by Suicide?" and I, for me, it was it was a really helpful article just to help me understand. But but one of the points of the article uh, was a study, uh, the Clergy Health Initiative at Duke. Uh, Divinity School, uh, found that pastors experience depression rates at double that of the general population, and yet resources available to them are specifically, uh, specifically available to them are very few. And uh, Michael and I were talking just before the podcast, and he, he was saying that he, he bets those, even those stats are off. Mike, what were you saying about that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that any statistics, statistics that refer to a pastor's um, depression or mental health, especially if it's on the unhealthy side, or or any types of immoral behaviors are all underreported because it would require that pastors be honest. Mm-hmm. And that means job terminations and stigmas and, you know, nothing's new under the sun. When Adam and Eve got found out, they went in the bushes and they sowed fig leaves. Mm-hmm. And we're doing the same thing today. And I'm just grateful that God hasn't changed. He's still coming and calling us by name and the person and work of Jesus to come out uh, and that he can clothe us in his gospel. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of pressure. Uh, Clint, you were talking about earlier too. There's, there's just job pressures. But one of the reasons why I think pastors are so overwhelmed at times with depression is because we have to deal with everyone else's depression too. Um, we're, you know, the, the pastor is the tip of the spear for all trauma and all types of sociology mm-hmm. and psychology and mental health. Yeah. If you're really doing your job, you're literally a first responder. Right. And if we're honest, it, it, it just, it can become very overwhelming for a pastor. And then when you throw in your own stuff, mm-hmm your own story, perhaps, your own failures, uh, some of your own physiological challenges, whether they be mental or whether they be just physical, you can see why we could get in trouble real fast. Yeah, and you were talking about the two sides of this for a pastor. It's it's the actual issues that he's dealing with, but it's also in some ways a performance anxiety. Absolutely, I mean, um, it's it's amazing because I was thinking about this with a friend, you know, before last week, and we were asking, what other job do you know that if you did X, you would be fired? Like, there's not a lot of jobs. I'm not saying it's right, but there aren't a lot of jobs that carry with it such a performance standard. Mm-hmm. And we're Christians, so no Christian in their right mind is saying, Oh man, I really wish I could cheat. I really wish I could steal. (laughs) Like, you don't, but there is that burden. And yes, I'm going to call it that because we're imperfect where we feel like, man, we have to uphold these standards to keep our jobs. And the reality of it is, is we say we're all imperfect except for pastors. Um, But then, you know, the performance thing, you have to preach well, You have to do people skills well. You have to do everything well as a pastor because, as they say, your final exams on Sunday and your quizzes and tests are throughout the week. And so that produces a lot of pressure. Yeah. 
Well, I'm glad we're talking about this, especially in the midst of something that's a, kind of an added complexity with the coronavirus. We're having this conversation. There's, there's a lot going on around mental health, and uh, people are thinking about this uh, because of that, that as well. Clint, you, um, in this episode, sit down with a pastor who had a wife who committed suicide. Why don't you introduce this interview to us? Yeah, well, Steve Swisher's been a longtime friend of mine. We started churches uh, around the same time and uh, in the same network, and we were a few hours away from each other, but got to know one another at, at meetings and whatnot. And um, and though we have, you know, uh, in our tribe, we're, we're Baptists, there's lots of different versions of Baptists, and so um, we we weren't, I, I wouldn't say we weren't like close companions and friends, but we've been acquaintances and respected one another throughout our church planning journey. Yeah, and in 2012, his, his wife took her own life, and um, that was, you know, sort, sort of shook our, our network and um, was difficult for all of us to imagine how that kind of thing could happen. And so I never had really had an in-depth conversation, conversation with Steve about that, but he, as you'll see, he really did, um, he really did get vulnerable and go into the weeds of it with us. And there's some really redemptive things uh, that came out of the conversation that I hope will be helpful for us, especially for those of us dealing with uh, family members, friends, acquaintances, church members, um, uh, family members who are contemplating suicide or who have mentioned it. Mm. Wow. I'm glad he was willing to sit down with you uh, and to do this. Let's, uh, let's listen to a word from our sponsor, and then we'll get right into that interview. Hey, Clint, do you know what causes people to find a podcast in the store when they do a search? No. It's the reviews. If people give reviews and stars, that is, that's one of the most important things. That, so uh, what you're saying is there could be some person in Arizona who is feeling God calling them to plant a church. Yeah. And they go to iTunes thinking, I wonder if there's a church planting podcast. And that's they what type I would in do. Church planting podcast, which is in fact the name of our podcast. Yes. And our podcast doesn't show up first because there aren't enough reviews. It's sad. That's it's sad. really sad. I mean to think about that, they're probably gonna get some some other podcast, yeah. inferior podcast. And this is free. It's free. This is free. It's totally free. All they can, are you just go in and help us out? Leave help a us review? Out. Yeah. Thanks. We will not, we will not do a share like the Christian radio does. <laughs> we're not going to, we're not going to browbeat you. We're not going to, we're not going to ask for anything from you except for just write down words. Even if you write down about how you don't like us, that's fine. Yeah. We have uh, terrible radio faces. Something like that. <laughs> Steve Swisher, we met 10, 15 years ago. I don't even know. It's been a long time. Archer's 15 years old. How old is Essential? Uh, Essential is, gosh, all these hard questions off the bat. <laughs> Essential's 11 years old, but it okay. came out of New Hope. So I've been here since 05. Okay. And you became, initially became the pastor of New Hope. Yes. And then you guys relaunched as essential. Yes. Okay. Got it. Got it. Why don't you just start by uh, telling us the story of essential church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Sure. I, I always knew that God had called me back when I was in seminary. I felt God calling me to plant a church in my hometown. And I thought that was West Palm beach where I grew up. And so I went back to West Palm beach and I just kept hitting roadblocks and church planting. So 
moved into what I felt was the next best thing, which was church revitalization. And eventually through a <coughs> series of events, my, my wife that I, I met her at that first church, um, she had some issues from her childhood that kept coming back, she, some abuse issues that she dealt with in, in childhood and just felt the need to just get away, get out of ministry for a while, help her get healthy. So we moved to Birmingham for two years and I didn't know if I'd ever go back to ministry. And in that time I was just doing volunteer ministry and she just really began to thrive. And so we, after a lot of talk and two years of just her going through therapy, so, okay, this was time we could get back into full-time ministry. Mm. And to be honest, I struggled to have the faith to start a church on my own. And so I looked for what I thought would be an easier route. Now, that's just funny <laughs> <laughs> to think that there's an easy route in church planting. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up finding a church in Virginia Beach. Now, I was born in Virginia Beach when my dad was in the Navy. And so... It was sort of the closest thing I had to a hometown other than West Palm. Mm -hmm. And so it was a church plant that had been going for about five years at that time, struggling, they had about 30, 40 people. And so we moved to Virginia Beach to sort of revitalize. It was sort of a combination of church revitalization and church planting. Mm -hmm. And came here in 2005 and just put our, you know, sort of put the grindstone on it and worked and worked and worked. And in a military town, you... Every church planner, I think, goes through this. You get up to 100, then you drop back down to 50. Then you get to 150, and then either somebody gets mad at you or somebody leaves or who knows, and then you drop straight back down to 75, and you sit in that. You know what I'm talking about, Cliff? Absolutely. I'm, I'm in a military community as well, yes. <laughs> um, so we went through that cycle, and by two, into 2008, we knew that it just wasn't going to work, that the church was going down. Um, I got a phone call from my, the lady who does our finances and she said, I'm just going to spell it out for you. If our next four months is like our last four months, it'll be our last four months. Mm -hmm. And around that time, I had this sense that God wasn't done with me here in Virginia beach. Yeah. Uh, that call that was on my life back in seminary, I knew was still valid. Mm -hmm. And I knew the call to Virginia beach was still valid. And it's, I sat down with our worship pastor and the two of us just, just began to talk and we sort of went kind of kicked around a few ideas. And then later that night, my wife and I went for a walk. I remember she turned to me and she said, how did we fail? And as a man, that's a hard question. Yeah. Um, when you accept that I've failed to do what I felt I was called to do, what I came here to do. Mm -hmm. And so I just turned her, I said, you know, we've got a little less than $10,000 in the bank, which we could nurse out for the next four months or so with expenses. I said, but I don't want to die a slow death as a church anymore than I want to die a slow death as a person. I just, let's go out with a bang. What can we do with 10? Let's just change the question. What can we do with $10,000 to change our community? Mm -hmm. And we just kept walking laps around the, around the block. And we just threw out, no idea was a bad idea. And there was one problem with every idea we came up with lasting impact. Yeah. You could do all kinds of events, but there was no lasting impact. And mm -hmm. so my wife turned to me and said, well, how do you have an evangelistic lasting impact in a community? What can you do? <laughs> and I said, well, plant a church. 
And she said, but we already did that and we failed. And I said, yeah, we failed for a lot of reasons. And I think that if we tried this again, I think we would know the mistakes we made. And I found in that season, uh, I don't, you may know better than I do, the number of church planters who failed before they succeeded. Yeah. Very yeah. high number. I don't, I don't know a stat, but there's, it is a high number, yeah. And so we kind of went back to the drawing board, met with our trustees who came to my house to talk about shutting the church down. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, if, if all we're going to do is give away our assets, what if we took these assets and started a new church? And so I cast the vision then for Essential Church at the end of 2008 and since we had four months to live we looked on the calendar saw that nelson searcy recommended that january february is a great time to launch a church yeah and that was four months away and so we did hmm. and uh, every church has a different goal I, I remember a study by stephen gray saying that if your church doesn't hit 200 in the first two years there's less than 10 percent chance it ever will i don't know if that's an accurate stat are you familiar with that yeah yeah that's yeah, the 200 barrier. Yeah. And so that was our goal. Just, we just wanted to hit 200 and one year in, we were given a facility right down the street from where we were at from a church that was dying and they just offered to give us the facility and let us take it over. And we did. And we had 300 that morning. Wow. And there's a great picture of my wife and I, we, in the chaos of everything going on and just the excitement of going, we were about, running about 160 before that Sunday. And it was sort of like this movie moment where our eyes met and we just kind of came together in the middle of the room. And after, when you've been with somebody trying to church, plant a church and you've been through a lot of dead ends and you've been through a lot of heartaches and you've been through a lot of people walking out on you and core members betraying, I mean, every story that you can imagine for church planting we've been through. And it was just that moment where we realized, you know, we didn't just hit 200, we just blew right through it. Yeah. And our eyes met and we just sort of kind of embraced right there in the middle of the foyer with every, all the chaos going on and just had a moment. And um, not to be cliche, but it was like a Rocky moment, like, yo, Adrian, we did it, you know? <laughs> um, but during that time that that happened, when we were renovating that building, uh, a very close friend of mine in the church came to me and said, Steve, I, I think your wife might have a, a drug addiction. Hmm. And... I thought about it for a minute. I thought about what they were saying. I went through and kind of replayed a few things. And I just looked at them and I said, I think you're right. And what had happened over time is the way that she had coped with things when we first met, she knew that that was a very unhealthy, destructive way to cope with it. And when she was in therapy in Birmingham was learning better methods, but somewhere along the way, uh, and it started in Birmingham. I just didn't know it. I didn't know the signs of it. Uh, mostly prescription painkiller type addictions. Yeah. And she just morphed and moved to that becoming her way of coping. Yeah. And so that was in 2010, we found out. And so we went and did some work on that to try to get her out of that realm. When it comes to depression, I would liken it to, like, I have an ankle injury old, you know, war injury from high school sports. Doesn't bother me at all. I don't have any problems walking, anything. But whenever I go back and do the weekend warrior thing, or I'll go out with my kids and play, within about two hours, all of a sudden that injury just comes back instantly. Right. You had something like that? 
Oh yeah. That's what mental illness is a lot of times. Mm -hmm. uh, you can have a mental illness that's sort of an old nagging injury mm -hmm. and day in and day out, you're not depressed and day in and day out, you're just fine. Just like my ankle doesn't hurt me at all right now. I went hiking this past weekend and about mile two of the eight mile hike, it started to hurt. Mm -hmm. And anytime I, I stepped on a rock wrong, it really, you know, flared up. And I, I think that's what mental health is oftentimes like, that you're just fine and then something will trigger it, something will happen. And if you know what those injuries are like, it's not like as if your ankle just hurts a little. It goes back to hurting as intense as it did when you sprained it before. Mm. And it doesn't take much. And in 2012, we got a phone call out of the blue that her brother had taken his own, taken his own life on Memorial Day weekend. And that was sort of like that inciting incident, like stepping on a rock funny on your ankle. Mm -hmm. And it really spiraled her into a really bad path. And the other thing that happened during that time is suicide was never a part of her vocabulary. It was never something, it was never even a thought or a discussion. It never even entered her mind. Any of the ways that she ever tried to cope with her mental illness with her depression uh, with you know she had some abuse in her childhood and either it was never a, a, an avenue or a path or an option for her mm -hmm. but after her brother did it it was almost as if she'd been exposed to a new opportunity yeah you know, a new solution mm -hmm. and on the ride back from the funeral she said this phrase, and it's something that she began to say a lot over the next couple of weeks. It's just not fair. He takes his life. He gets to go to be in heaven, and we're left to deal with all the mess. He's in paradise, and we're living through hell. It's just not fair. And what that was doing was subtly making suicide seem like this entry or this gate or this wow, that's the person who has it great and everybody else has to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And it was almost as though you could begin to see the enticement of it, the woo of it, the call of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't throw out Satan's name and I don't talk about, um, you know, the devil made me do it. And, but, you know, but I am fully aware that there are, our battles against, is, is in the spiritual realm as well. Right. Um, you just couldn't help but see the dark enticement of the whole thing, mm -hmm. just the satanic influence. Not that my, not that my wife was demon possessed or anything like that, but you can be wooed by a dark force. And to me, that's just kind of what that statement was. It was just such, it was such darkness and such a twisting and I think that's what Satan does. He twists things and he makes something that is so destructive seem like it's this path to light. Mm -hmm. And so six weeks after her brother took his life, um, she was in a really bad place mentally. And um, it kind of came to head one Monday afternoon um, in July, 
And she said, I just need to get out of the house. I just need to get out of the house. And for the first time, I just, I mean, I don't know what was, I, I had a sense she's suicidal. Mm-hmm. I never had that sense ever before. I was able to talk to her counselor after she passed away that she'd been seeing for the past two years here in Virginia beach. And the counselor me said, you know, suicide never came up. I never had any inkling idea that that was ever an issue for her. It ever would be something she would consider. Now her counselor hadn't seen her since her brother had passed. Mm-hmm. And it was like this idea was planted there and just began to grow. And, uh, and she said, I just had to get out of the house. And she didn't want me to walk with her. She's like, I just need to be alone. And so she wanted to go for a walk, had her cell phone and $40. I didn't want her to have a car. I was afraid, you know, something with that. And she ended up calling a friend of hers who was probably the most destructive person she knew, who was already in the midst of destroying her own life in different ways, and convinced that girl to drive her to a hotel and leave her there alone and wouldn't tell me where she was at. And um, two days later on July 4th, she took a lethal overdose of Tylenol. The thing about Tylenol is a lot of people think if you take sleeping pills, you just go to sleep and you wake up the next day and you're in paradise. Uh, It doesn't work that way like it does in the movies. a heavy overdose of Tylenol PM has the same reaction that taking uh, LSD would have. It sends you into a hallucinative state. And when they found her in the, ho- in the hotel room, uh, that's where she was at. When I, when I saw her in the ER, she was completely hallucinating, was not mentally stable. Tylenol destroys your liver and you're in a really bad place for about the first 24 to 48 hours. And then there's sort of a lull. And she actually came out of, a, out of her coma after about 48 hours. And we were able to talk. Now, she couldn't verbally speak because she had tubes in her mouth, but she could write. And she just basically told me that she was just in a bad place, wasn't thinking clearly, and had made a decision in a moment. And at the time, the doctors were just, you know, had told us she was going to be fine. It was better than a 90% chance she would be fine. And if not, they could do a liver transplant and she, then she'd be fine. And so I just said, you know, it's okay. You know, we, we got through this. It's, you know, we'll talk about it after, after you get out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And about an hour later, she went back into a coma and she never came out of it. Mm-hmm. And so on July 8th is when she finally passed. You guys <clears throat> have children. We have three children. Uh, at the time, they were four, five, and seven years old. Mm-hmm. My middle child uh, has intellectual disabilities and autism. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, two years into a replanting of a church, uh, actually, I guess we we're about three, four years into it at that time. Yeah, here I am now, a single pastor, a widowed pastor with three really young children. My youngest was going into preschool. Um, My daughter, who's the special needs daughter, she was just starting kindergarten. So they're only in school a half day here in Virginia Beach back then. And then my son was in second grade. So um, a couple of questions come to mind. First, what do you now know about 
suicide and uh, living with somebody um, who um, is tempted by suicide that, that we don't know? The hard part about that question is you never know fully somebody is going to do it until they do it. Right. And the hard part, I, I've retraced, as you can imagine, I have retraced every decision I made in the week leading up to, to her death. Mm -hmm. You know, the question, what could I have done differently, always comes up. And I think it's a question that every person who's lost somebody to suicide asks. Yeah. What could I have done differently? When somebody begins to talk about suicide, you can't ignore that. Yeah. Uh, and typically people, I've heard this from every expert book I've read, is that there's quote unquote warning signs. Mm -hmm. And what I saw in, in my own experience is that one of those warning signs is when anytime somebody talks in a positive light about suicide, yeah. or about the consideration of it or what it would be like, or it's really not that big of a deal mm. or has some sort of strange empathy and connection with somebody who did it. You know, if right now if somebody's, you know, hears of somebody who's taking their life says, well, you know, I could see why you would do that. And then kind of go on and expand as to all of the positive benefits of it. Mm. That's somebody who's been twisted uh, down, down that path. Yeah. And, you know, for, in my situation, I, I could see that sort of gradual move towards seeing suicide in a more positive light over time. But it was just so hard to believe that somebody, you know, that my wife could do that. Right. Um, but then uh, there was another sort of inciting incident that happened after her brother took his life that sort of re-triggered a lot of her past trauma from childhood. She actually had to see her biological father who was the source of the abuse at the funeral. Mm -hmm. And some of the ongoing effects of that after the funeral and whatnot, it was sort of like you went from twisting your ankle to somebody you know, literally falling on it. Right. And that's why that day when she said she wanted to go for a walk, there was just something in me that I knew. Mm -hmm. I just knew she was in a suicidal state. Yeah. And I thought, okay, going for a walk around the block, what, what could that hurt? Mm -hmm. um, Interacting with what you went through and, and what you were doing in ministry and career wise. Um, do you think, I mean, I, I think when I think of suicide and ministry and the interaction of pastor wives, church planner wives, pastors, church planners, uh, church staff members um, uh, being suicidal or attempting suicide or committing suicide, uh, the thing that comes to mind is that usually the pressures of ministry are a part of that equation. Now, in, in the story you just told about your wife, that it wasn't part of the equation, but but was it? Well, there's a piece of this I've, I've intentionally left out. And really to answer that question, I sort of have to answer, I kind of have to go to that piece that I've intentionally left out. Because of the abuse she went through as a child, um, 
the coping mechanism for that was a sexual addiction. Um, and when all that came to light at my first church, that's when I said, you know, I, I, I can't be in ministry with this. And so I quit my job and we moved, you know, to get her to a place of health. And that sexual addiction where she would just literally, she'd meet a guy at the supermarket and ended up in a hotel with him that day. Um, and that sexual addiction moved towards a drug addiction and that was her coping mechanism. After her brother took his life, she went back down the old familiar path. Yeah. And when that had come to light, I just looked at her and I said, you're more important to me than any church. And she kept saying, I can't have you walk away from another church for me. Mm -hmm. And so it was a part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, this is part of that whole second guessing thing. Um, in my mind, my family always came first. She was always more important than any church or job or ministry or anything. But with where she was at, she couldn't, she didn't want to allow herself to be a reason why yeah. something detrimental would happen to church or ministry. Mm -hmm. um, once again, a very, I don't know, sad, twisted part of it. Right. Um, and at that time, the ministry was, how was it going? You know, amazing really i mean by, by that time we were probably running 400 450 and you know figure when you've been you know in church planting circles anytime you can get to the point where you're just self-sustaining it's you feel like god has shined the light and blessed you right by that time we were you know when you're when you're hitting those 400 500 numbers uh, you're in a real sweet spot as far as your financial situation goes, the number of people you have, the volunteers you have, running multiple services. Um, it's a great time of ministry that season. And I, I've, I've always tried to protect my family from the pressures of ministry. Yeah. Uh, there was never any expectation placed on my wife or on my kids for anything to this day. There's, I've seen the dangers of that, heard the horror stories of that. But at the end of the day, you can't fully protect your family from an element of it. Um, okay. Even if it doesn't come from the church and even if it doesn't come from you, they can still have that sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's where, that's where my, my wife was at. She, she didn't, she saw all of the good that was happening and all of the, I guess you could say the word success in mm -hmm. ministry that was happening. And she didn't want to be, the reason why any of it stopped. She didn't want to be the reason to hold any of it back. She didn't want to, she didn't want me to have to leave that for her, that her problems shouldn't keep other people from experiencing the church that they had grown to love and where they had found a relationship with Jesus Christ. And she kept saying, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. Mm -hmm. um, I listened to, 
the sermon that you preached uh, most, well, the, the first time you preached after her death. And uh, there were so many things that were striking about that. Um, but bef before we get to that, how, how long did it take for you to get back in the pulpit? So she passed away July 8th. The message you're referring to, I want to say, was the first or second week of October. And it was one where that wasn't me coming back to ministry. That was just, as a pastor, oftentimes that's how you process spiritually what you're going through in your relationship with God. And it's really hard to separate out your personal devotional life from your preaching, if you will. Right. I think it's different for everybody, but for me, they've always been heavily in integrated. And of course, our church had a lot of questions and they wanted to know how I was at and where, you know, what was going on in my life. And it just seemed to be the easiest way to sort of explain where I was at emotionally and spiritually with everything. And it went well, I, I, as well as you can imagine. I broke down, I think, a few times in that message. Yeah. And then I think I may have given one more message in November, maybe, I can't remember. And then I came back and spoke a little bit at Christmas because let's face it, Christmas is a, I think an easier time to kind of resume preaching because the topics are already set for you. Right. But I really wasn't back in full-time ministry. That was me just coming in to speak on a Sunday. Right. And then I slowly resumed ministry in the new year. Mm -hmm. And I went from kind of preaching on most Sundays, but not being in the office much, not doing any counseling, uh, any meetings. Uh, eventually, I began to attend staff meeting. I didn't lead staff meeting. And it wasn't really until probably the following summer that I was back 100%. Yeah. You said in the sermon, you said a few things that were memorable, but one of them <clears throat> that stuck out to me was kind of right in the, at the top of the sermon. You said something that I've heard, um, not just uh, family members of those who've committed suicide, but of all sorts of tragedies say, which is um, you, you said you, that you had the feeling of never being happy again. You had the the thought that I, I could never smile again, I could never have joy again, I could never enjoy a moment again. Um, uh, is how, how long did that feeling last for you? And, you know, in the years since then, have you, have you been able to, I know you're never quite the same, but have you been able to get to a place of, of satisfaction and happiness? I wish I could tell you the day that I sort of made that turn. Mm -hmm. Now, I would say to my kids something, and I, and I would always say, I don't know whether I'm saying this out of faith or if I'm lying and just hoping that God makes me not a liar. I would say to my kids that God's going to bless us and we're going to have a great life. Yeah. Psalm 27, 13 says, I would have despaired if I didn't believe I would see the goodness of the Lord once again in my lifetime. Mm. And so... That's where I say, I don't know whether I was saying in faith, we're going to have a great life and it's going to be good. Or if I was just lying to my kids because I felt I had to, and then I would run to my room at night in tears and just cry out and say, God, please, I feel like I'm lying to my kids, but please make my words true. Yeah. 
uh, that sort of, I, I believe, but help me believe yeah. kind of thing. Um, something else spiritually though, that I, I began to realize, and this is just a, something you see throughout scripture is we often confuse the substance of the blessing with the source of the blessing. And my wife was a, was the substance of God's blessing in my life. Yeah. But at the time, I think I shared that message in the, in the morning period afterwards, what you see is you see them as the source. Yeah. You, you see this person as the, she was the mother of my children. She was my friend that I would spend my days with. She was my wife. She was my comfort. And, and you look at all of the ways that you are blessed through that person or, you know, in the years since I've, I've seen this with others that it could be a job. It could be a person. Uh, it could be an experience, but ultimately God is the source. And these people and jobs and places and houses and things are just simply a conduit that God has used to deliver his blessing to us. And, and so when you ask, you know, when did that shift happen? Uh, it happened primarily theologically when I made the shift to seeing God as the source rather than seeing my wife as the source. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, eventually God brought other avenues and other conduits of blessing into our life. Mm -hmm. But when, but when you believe that a person is the source of your blessing, when that person's taken away, it does lead to despair. Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's exactly the message God was trying to get across to Moses when Moses struck the rock. Yeah. The, the rock's not the source of the blessing I am. Hmm. Yeah. Um, how are you different as a pastor now than before Melissa's death? Well, if you go on our website, you'll notice there are no sermons on the website from before Melissa passed. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. Every pastor at some point ought to take six months off of ministry or four months off of ministry and just attend their own church, mm -hmm. if you could. And I remember I there's two two funny memories. One is... Uh, I attended our new members class and in the process we were going around having to introduce who we were and um, somebody looked at me and actually said, Oh, how long have you been coming here? I mean, people had no idea who I was. Anybody who joined the church in the past you know, few months had no idea who I was. I said, well, my name is Steve. I'm actually the founding pastor here. And they kind of looked at me like, well, what happened to you? But the most profound moment I had as a church member of my own church was taking communion. Uh, we made a decision when we first launched that we would have communion every Sunday. I'm not going to get into all the theological reasons for it. Right. It was a decision we made. It forced all of our preaching to lead to the cross no matter what, because uh, every message had to lead to that. And I remember as coming forward to take communion one morning and thinking to myself, What's happening in this moment with communion, what this represents is all that matters for Melissa. Mm -hmm. You know, everything else that was taught that morning, and I don't know whether the message was on godly principles and marriage or finances or whatever else it may have been. I just remember having this sense of clarity of realizing 
in the big picture of things, none of that matters for her right now. All that matters is that when she came forward to pick up this piece of bread and to dip it into this cup, that she was fully aware and conscious of what this means and what this represents and what Jesus Christ has done for her. Mm. And if she missed everything else, every other time she's been in church, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But this is what matters most. And if you'd asked me theologically before that day, I would have given you the exact same answer. But there's a difference when you add to a personal passion to that and a deeper understanding. Yeah. It forced me to ask the question of what really is salvation? And I don't know if I'd ever really fully answered that question. I had just taken all of the popular answers slash cliches, asking Jesus into my heart, uh, moving through a legal definition of sort of a sinner convicted of sin who's now been forgiven. And out of that time, um, there was another passage, I think it's a quote by John Piper. Uh, and it was from that original Easter message from 2012. And I yeah. think I may have quoted it against, again in that message that you heard. Yeah. It says, you know, that the greatest challenge in life is to cultivate such a deep and satisfying relationship with our Lord and Savior, that that a relationship alone and, and, and he alone is better than anything life can give us or death can take away from us. And out of that came this just simple phrase of what salvation is. It's that this life is about nothing more than establishing and growing and sharing a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that I'll enjoy for all eternity. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, that's when, when you go through a house and you clean out all the possessions of somebody you loved, mm -hmm. it changes you. Yeah. You know, this purse that she really wanted, these shoes that she loved, this shirt that was her favorite, these pictures that things that brought her so much joy those are all things that we can give our life to. Those are all things that we can see as our source of meaning, happiness, purpose, fulfillment. But what does that matter now? It's cleaned out. It's given away. It's sent to goodwill. It's sent to friends. It's sold, whatever. Few, few things are kept for keepsakes. Only thing that matters is her relationship with Jesus. And so I think every message I've preached since she passed away I've said that statement that this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with Jesus Christ you'll enjoy for all eternity. When Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing? Love, glory, God, all your heart, soul, and mind. And you see this theme come up so often throughout scripture. You know, the transaction of forgiving sin was primarily because of God's love for us. And, and I guess you could seek God out for forgiveness, but not really want to have a relationship with him. And I think you'd be missing the point. And so I, my entire church, you know, I say it every Sunday and they know I'm going to say it at some point. It's almost become a running joke with my preaching that at some point everything will just boil back down to and why, because we know this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that we'll enjoy for all eternity. Um, before we close uh, our conversation, I, I'm thinking of the people um, who are, surrounding um you know most of for most of us suicide's not going to touch our immediate family uh but for most of us it's going to touch uh, a family that we know or that we're close to or so what did what did people in the church i mean i think it's incredible that you 
leaned into the church, you know, and, and stayed there. And um, now we're now we're still leading the church even these many years later. But what did people do that was helpful uh, to you in that season um, and the way they related to you? And, and maybe conversely, what did people do that was unhelpful? A loaded question. I found a lot of, I, I understood the book of Job so much better after yeah. seeing the way people would try to come to comfort or help. Uh, there's also a passage. For the, for the listener, you just used air quotes. <laughs> okay. Just so yeah. you're not a listener. Yes. Uh, but probably the most profound understanding came from when Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb. Yeah. If you look at his conversation with Mary and Martha, I never understood that conversation until I had walked the road of grief. Mm. And both Mary and Martha, now this is me using the memory paraphrase version. They look at Jesus, and I think both of them say the exact same statement. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And with one of them, he goes into a theological discussion about the resurrection and the theology of it. And with the other sister, it just says the verse I think everybody has memorized, Jesus wept. Yeah. Both say the same thing, but Jesus responds differently. And when you're going through grief and mourning, there were days where all I wanted to do was have somebody to cry with. That's it. Um, I mean, I would just have those days where you couldn't do anything other than be sad. There were other days where I wanted to understand what was going on. I wanted to understand theologically and emotionally and psychologically what was going on. And as a friend who shows up, so when Jesus shows up, he's able to read where each sister is at. Now, had he given a theological explanation to the one who was crying, mm -hmm it would not have been helpful. It would have been very hurtful and damaging. Mm -hmm. uh, it, would have, it would have felt like one of Job's friends coming to try to tell him yeah. things he couldn't comprehend. And at the same time, when you have those questions and you have those moments of clarity, I didn't want somebody to show up at my door crying. Yeah. I mean, it's like, hey, I'm actually having a sane moment for a day. I'm not in the mood to cry. Can you please not just show up and start crying in front of me? And so you have to understand that uh, grief has sort of a cycles to it. I won't use any more hand gestures since this is audio, but grief, have, grief, grief has cycles. Uh, and probably the two most helpful things that, that were shared with me as I was understanding grief. One was, I think everybody who goes through grief feels like you're in a dark pit mm -hmm. and you just want to climb out of the pit. And I wish I could find this book. I don't know which book it was. I read a lot during this time. Uh, it was a book that said, when you're in this dark pit, the way out is not a ladder. So you think it's going to be this ladder and you're going to climb up this ladder. And eventually, when you get high enough out of the darkness of the pit, the lights rays that are kind of shining into the pit will hit you and you'll walk into the light and everything will be better. And so that's not how you get out of the pit. Rather, think of being down in this pit and you're walking up a spiral staircase on the perimeter of the pit. Mm -hmm. As light would shine into a hole in the ground, 
and the deeper you are down, the less light there is. Mm -hmm. And it sort of makes like this cone just on one wall of the pit. And as you're climbing up the staircase, you'll have these days where you walk into the light and you can see things clearly. But as you keep making progress up out of the pit, you go back into the darkness mm. where there is no light shining. The closer you get to the top of that pit, the more light there is and the longer you stay in the light. Mm. But you still have these days or these weeks or these short seasons where you go back into the darkness on your way out. That was the most helpful for me. Mm. Because without that understanding, you'd feel like you were climbing up a ladder than falling right back down. Right. Because you'd go back into this darkness and you'd think to yourself, I'm never getting out. Yeah. But you're realizing that your, your trips in the darkness get shorter. Yeah. The closer you get to coming out of that, that darkness. Mm. The other thing that was very helpful was actually the psychiatrist that I talked to in the hospital. And he said, whenever somebody takes their own life, it's unavoidable. No matter how close you were to the person or how distant you were, you ask the question, you kind of wonder how much of this was my fault or what could I have done differently? And he said, you know, if I were to have been your wife's therapist and if I could have spent the past five years getting to know her and everything about her, I would have a file cabinet full of her life. And in that file cabinet would be folders with every person that she's come in contact with who's had any significant or any, any impact in her life. And of course, you as her husband would probably have a pretty thick file in there. And there'd be one or two pages in there, uh, in that file, that may have caused injury or damage or sadness or sorrow out of everything in your folder. Mm -hmm. And he says, as you're sitting there right now, the only thing you're thinking about are the two or three pieces of paper in that entire file cabinet that has your name on it that you're a part of. Mm -hmm. And he says the, the true answer, the, the honest answer in this situation is there's no one piece of paper in that file cabinet that led to this moment. Yeah. And everybody knows what their one piece of paper is. Mm. He says the reality is what gets somebody to this point is the full collection of everything. But then beyond that, they made a lot of their own decisions. He says the biggest folder in there is going to be your wife and how she dealt with it and what she did with it. Yeah. And the choices and decisions that she made. Wow. And that was very helpful for me because I knew it was on my piece of paper. Yeah. And I struggle with that. I think as every survivor does. Yeah. Uh, the woulda, coulda, shouldas of life. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it was a decision that she made. Mm -hmm. And that took me a long time to kind of get to that point. Right. Steve, uh, having this conversation can't be easy. And um, the fact that you're willing to do this uh, means a lot to me. And I, I think will be helpful to those who listen to it. Um, uh, you're inspirational to me. And just uh, from a distance, having watched you walk through this, um, I'm so convinced of God's um, sustaining grace in our lives when we go through tra tragedy. So thanks for being willing to do this. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me, Clint. It's been Good to have you as a friend all these years. I love what you do with church planting. I love your heart uh, to just to continually multiply way back in the day. You were doing church planting and multiplying before the rest of us even knew how to plant a single church. You were already planting multiples. So, Yeah, I jokingly, uh, uh, not jokingly so much. I, I wasn't that good at church planter is the big 
the big secret, you know. Uh, I, I've found a lot more fruitfulness in my life by helping other church planners than I ever was, uh, ever did as a church planner myself. But I've always had an unusual interest in multiplication and uh, thankful for that and how God's used that in my life. But uh, again, thanks, Steve. Appreciate you so much, man. And if folks wanted to find out more about Essential uh, or you, is there a place on the internet they can go to do that? Sure, EssentialChurch.com. And if they go back and look at the earliest messages on there, if they're interested in this topic, um, that message is called My Own Words. And then the first series I really did out of this was called Perspective. Mm. Um, uh, And that, you know, I I think the subtitle of that was sometimes the only change you need is a change in perspective. Mm. Uh, And that's what I needed to to get out of my grief and to move through my grief was moved from that perspective of what life is really all about. Most pastors and church leaders I know have an aspiration to write. They've got an idea for a book rolling around the back of their mind somewhere, something that's kind of been percolating for a long time that they don't quite know what to do with. Well, if that's you and you have an aspiration to write, I want you to know my friend Brad Bird. Brad runs an organization called Wadestone, and they're dedicated to this process of helping aspiring authors get ready to publish. So contact my friend Brad Bird over at Wadestone. And if you're a church planning podcast listener, he's doing this really generous thing and he's offering 25% off the first coaching session just for mentioning that you listen to the church planning podcast. So reach out to Brad at his website, wadestoneinc.com and tell him you listen to the podcast and ask him to help you get ready to write. Thank you for listening to the Church Planning Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Today's episode of the Church Planting Podcast is sponsored by New City Network, the church planting ministry of McLean Bible. A special thanks to today's guest, Pastor Steve Swisher. Josh Taransky produced today's show. Zuki Bastjane was our showrunner and her husband Nick was our editor. Thanks to Hudson Taransky, who provided administrative and web support for the program. And last but not least, thanks to you for listening all the way through to the very end of the Church Planting Podcast. Hey, if you'd like more information about the show, feel free to visit our website at www.churchplantingpodcast.org. There you can find all of our past episodes, as well as notes and links from today's show. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so check us out there on the social. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Church Planting Podcast.